Tonight I'd like to speak about some states of mind that are particularly seductive. States of mind that we get caught in and get lost in again and again. The Buddha called them, as you probably remember, the five hindrances. This is what he said. When we attend to them carelessly, when we attend to the hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. Lack of vision, lack of knowledge, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. But when we do attend carefully, these very same hindrances become the basis for deeper understanding, both in meditation practice and in our lives. And we can really learn how to recognize and work with and understand these very seductive energies that are deeply habituated within us. In the suttas, the traditional list starts with desire. I found over the years that when I start with desire, I never get beyond it. (laughs) So over the last years, I've taken to reversing the order. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight. So in reverse order, the first of the hindrances is doubt. Now doubt's interesting because it really can refer to two quite different states of mind, one of which is helpful and beneficial and the other is not. The helpful kind of doubt is the quality of investigation. It's the quality of inquiry. What is this? What is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of the body? What's happening? In Zen, sometimes they call this the great doubt. It's really holding the great question in our minds. What is the nature of my experience? This kind of doubt we could call the opposite of blind belief. You know, where we're looking intently, we're questioning. The unhelpful aspect of doubt we could call skeptical doubt. And this is the mind state of uncertainty. It's the mind state of indecision. It's like coming to a crossroads and then not knowing which way to go. The mind simply goes back and forth between different alternatives, not going any place. When this kind of skeptical doubt is strong in our minds, You know, this indecision, this bewilderment. What's the right way? When this is strong in our minds, we really come to a standstill in our practice. When doubt is strong, it doesn't even give us the opportunity to go forward and make a mistake and learn from our mistakes. It's as if we're frozen in indecision. We're always checking ourselves. We're always wondering, trying to decide. A couple of years ago, there was quite a wonderful book called The Life of Pi by Jan Martel. And in this book, he, there, was, there was a couple of lines, actually one line, which just jumped out at me as I read because it was such a good description of this mind state. He said, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) It's not a very effective means. So in meditation practice, doubt takes some very particular forms. And it's helpful to reflect on these particular arisings in the mind, so we can recognize them quickly and easily. 
Very often there's doubt about the practice itself. I'm sure at different times, especially those of you who've been here a while now, and maybe even for those of you who just came, the thought might arise, what am I doing here? What does watching the breath have to do with anything? You know, you're sitting in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, and the mind can be filled with a kind of doubt, what is the point of all this? You know, the feeling, this is really useless. Or the doubt could take the form of comparing practices. And here we are watching the breath and the body and noting what's happening, and the mind might start thinking, ah, Tibetan chanting would be a lot more fun. You know, maybe I should be doing Sufi dancing. And so we just start comparing, and the doubt, the doubting mind takes that form. Doubt about the teachers. <laughs> Who are these people anyway? <laughs> you know, and many of you have studied with different teachers, different practices, different traditions. And so the doubting mind can take the form, well, who's right? You know, they said this, and we're saying this, and mind starts comparing and judging and doubting, again, bringing us to a standstill, just leading to that kind of indecision. Perhaps the deepest kind of doubt, and the one with the most far-reaching implications for us in our meditation practice and in our lives, is self-doubt. Doubting our own ability to practice. You know, and this can take the form, am I doing this right? I don't really understand this. Am I, am I doing it in the right way? Or am I take the form of, this is too hard. I can't do this. This isn't the right time. You know, maybe I'll try next year. When the pattern of self-doubt is strong, it becomes a very debilitating force in our lives because we're always undermining ourselves. And we're always holding ourselves back through that self-doubt. There's a very interesting phrase in English. You know, when we say someone is plagued by doubt. Interesting. It is like a plague. It's like a plague that weakens us. You know, instead of making the experiment, whether in meditation or in anything else in our lives, and engaging fully in whatever the experience is so that we can see for ourselves, we can assess for ourselves, is this valuable or not? Is it of benefit or not? Instead of engaging fully in that way, the mind, when it's filled with self-doubt, simply gets lost in this endless speculation. When this is happening, the doubt becomes self-fulfilling. Because staying lost in doubt really is useless. And we don't get any place. And so then it's a self-fulfilling kind of thought loop. Doesn't allow, it doesn't allow for us to make the experiment, to engage fully, to do the practice fully, and then to see. The endless conjecturing that comes from doubt is exhausting. You know, and in the text it's likened to a thorny mind which keeps jabbing. And every time there's that doubt in the mind, it's like this jab of a thorn. What happens is we, we get tired, we get discouraged, and we become dissatisfied with our own practice. Now the great seduction of doubt, the reason it's a seductive energy, is that very often it comes masquerading as wisdom. 
we hear these very wise sounding voices in our minds. You know, and the voices sound very reasonable to us. And then we get caught up in these endless thought loops. So what to do? How can we work with it? How can we actually free ourselves from this particular pattern, this hindrance? First and most important, it's to recognize these various voices of doubt just when they arise. And we may each have our own particular tape. You know, and so you really have to recognize what form this takes for you. As soon as you become aware of one of these voices, I can't do this, doubting tape. It's too hard, doubting tape. What's the point of it all, doubting tape? We really catch it quickly. We see it for what it is. We see that it's just a tape loop in the mind. Then it doesn't have a hold on us, doesn't have any power. If we can catch this quickly, or as close to the beginning as possible, we begin to learn something very important. We see that the doubting tape is really just another thought. And the only power it has is the power that we give it. And just as an experiment, you know, you're sitting, you're walking, you're going through the day, you can hear this voice of doubt sounding very wise in your mind. When you see it, you know, and you can note it, and you can label doubting tape, and then you come back in that moment to a step, to a breath, to a sound. In the moment of coming back and reconnecting with your experience, is there any confusion? Is there any question? Is there any problem? We simply come back to the stream of knowing. We come back to the simplicity of knowing. In so many ways, I think that the evolution of our practice really is about coming back to simplicity. Our minds have gotten so complicated. And what we're practicing, just hearing, just a breath, just a sensation, just a thought. And in that, there's really no confusion at all. Sometimes also with very recurring doubts, with ones that just keep coming again and again and again, even after they've been noted, sometimes an intellectual clarification can help. You know, the Buddha's teaching is such a brilliant understanding of how the mind works, of how we create suffering, how we can be free. And so on the conceptual level, on the intellectual level, there's a great deal of clarification that can take place. So this is the first of the hindrances, doubt. The second one is something that probably you're all familiar with at one time or another. And this is the mind states, the cluster of mind states, of restlessness, of worry, of agitation. It's helpful to understand this particular cluster on an energetic level. Because it happens, these states happen when there's too much energy and not enough concentration to hold it, to be steady with it. And so for one reason or another, there's a lot of energy happening and the container, is the container of samadhi, of concentration, can hold the amount of energy that's present. And so we get agitated or restless with it. And this also takes different forms. Sometimes there's this intense restlessness of the body, just feeling we can't possibly sit still. It feels like we want to jump out of our skin. One time early on, this was back in the 70s, I was teaching in Hawaii, and in the middle of a talk, 
had this wave, this wave of intense restlessness in my body just come over me. And I had to do everything. I was, it was quite a, I didn't even know the right word. I was going to say interesting or embarrassing or something. You know, but the, the energy of it was so, so strong. And certainly on retreat this has happened at different times. Once, one of the times I was in Burma, it seemed like at the same time every evening, it would come to be about 7.30 or 8 in the evening, and this restlessness would hit so strongly. I'd have to get up and just walk fast around the whole monastery. I'm sure, you know, I'm pretty tall and the Burmese are not. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure they thought, who is this crazy Westerner kind of running around the monastery? But that's what can happen when we're just feeling this, this intense physical restlessness. Sometimes the body is still. It's not a restlessness of the body, but it's a restlessness and agitation of the mind. You know, we're just caught up in a whirlwind of thoughts and fantasies and images and the mind just jumping from one thing to another very quickly. We can get caught in obsessive thought patterns which just go around and around and around. Maybe it's patterns of worry or patterns of regret. It's also a phenomenon which you're very familiar with, I think, which we have dubbed yogi mind, you know, which is another kind of restlessness. It's where compulsive thoughts start happening out of all proportion to their importance or even their connection to reality. But we just get caught up in them. One time I was on self-retreat here at IMS years ago. I was just walking in the front door and as I was walking in the front door, I heard some people in the office. I didn't hear the conversation. I just heard one word. Joseph. <laughs> I walked by, and the whole rest of the hour, whatever the next sitting was, my mind was just spinning. You know, why were they talking about me? Did I do something wrong? You know, and just on and on and on, from one word. That's yogi mind. It's really helpful to learn to recognize it. Sometimes it's hard, because, and that's the nature of yogi mind, because we believe it. But if you feel really, you know, intensely, something's intensely important, there's a good chance that that's what it is. <laughs> There's a more subtle kind of restlessness, and this probably, uh, you know, the awareness of this is probably for the more experienced yogis here. Because it happens when the practice is well-developed. You know, the mindfulness is strong, the concentration is strong, everything is moving along very smoothly and evenly. And in that state, the the thoughts don't really seem to be very troubling, and so the thoughts are just kind of part of the stream of what's happening. What can happen is that in that state, because it is going so smoothly, that we're really not being very mindful of the thoughts. And so it's the thoughts, it's like a fast-flowing river, you know, but around the banks in some places there are eddies, in which the water kind of swirls around in a, the other direction. And so sometimes we can be going along and because we're not really paying attention to the arising of the thought, maybe it's, I don't know exactly the image here, but maybe it's just like sticks in the river kind of being caught up in the eddy and going around and around. Really, it's a kind of subtle restlessness. And so it's worth, at those times, you know, of really quite steady practice, paying more careful attention. So 
So what to do, how to work with the restlessness in whatever form it is, whether it's restlessness of the body, restlessness of the mind, yogi mind. As with doubt, the first strategy, the most important way of working with it, is to recognize it quickly, or as quickly as possible. Pay attention, keep an eye out for the arising of restlessness. Open to it with mindfulness. Note it. Restless, restless, agitated, whatever the note, whatever appropriate note might be. Understand the energetics of it. Understand it's arising because there's too much energy, not enough concentration. So then we look a little closer. And we see that the restlessness or this imbalance can happen in several ways. Sometimes it happens because the mind is too lax. We're not concentrated enough to hold the energy because the mind is too lax. It's not really close to the object. And so we are just allowing the mind to wander off and get lost. When that's the case, we need to rein it in. We really need to rein the mind in, a closer attention. And something I've mentioned different times in this retreat and uh, elsewhere, something I found extremely helpful in this regard is to frame our effort in terms of a half-breath. Now, if you're trying to be aware of a full breath, it's too much. Because for most people, the mind doesn't actually have the capacity to be aware of a whole breath. If you make your intention be aware of a half breath, in, did it, out, (laughs) did it, or rising, Frame just that, falling. Half breath by half breath is something we can do. That's the right duration for the intention of our effort. And what's so amazing is that a half breath is enough. That's all we have to do. Half breath, half breath, half breath, half breath. The mind gets concentrated. So sometimes our attention is too lax. We need to rein it in. Sometimes we get restless or agitated because the mind is too tight. We're holding on too tight. We're tensing in some way. If that's the case, then we need to relax. We need to open up. We need to make the mind more spacious. And we can do that being aware of the whole body, just sitting, we can do it by becoming aware of sounds, we can do it by simply resting in the knowing. Restlessness is like this great whirlwind traveling through space. If we become the space, then it's not a problem. We just become aware, whirlwind, whirlwind, restlessness, agitation, We're holding the space, and then it becomes very workable. So there's doubt, there's restlessness and agitation, worry. The third of the hindrances, and one that is an old favorite, is sloth and torpor. You know, it's just that quality of sleepiness, of dullness. And a favorite example for me of this mind state is the animal, the three-toed sloth. And I read up on it. A three-toed sloth is really slothful. (laughs) It just hangs by its leg on a branch. And I read in this book that you could shoot a gun by its ear and it wouldn't even turn its head. (laughs) You know, it's just... 
And then once in a huge while, it makes its way down, you know, and eats a little bit and mates or whatever sloths do. <laughs> and then it goes back up and just hangs. Well, I don't know which came first, the naming of the mind state or the naming of the animal, but it's a very good characterization of it. It's important to begin to understand how this energy of sloth and torpor, first, why it's so seductive, you know, and why it often has so much power uh, over us. It's very common, as you know, the first days of a retreat. I mean, so those of you who came recently, if you're feeling a lot of sleepiness or dullness, this is completely normal. But it can also continue, even for people who've been here for six weeks or longer, sometimes we begin to see that the sloth and torpor, it can hit at certain times of the day. And you're going along fine, and then at a certain time of day, it's just this this wave of sleepiness that comes. Mostly in our lives, we are moving and acting and living on the energy of stimulation. Now, in in our lives, there is so much stimulation through all the sense doors and what we ingest in the media and television, all of it, contact with other people and conversation. So all day long we're being bombarded with stimulation. And so we're just kind of running on this energy. You come to a retreat like 90% of that stimulation is eliminated. What happens? <laughs> you know, there's a real withdrawal. The mind sort of collapses back into itself. But as you've probably experienced to some extent, after some time we begin, having withdrawn from the external stimulation, we begin to connect with the energy system that is this mind and body. You know, this whole mind-body experience is an energy field. So once we quiet down a bit and connect with the energy system that we are, the mind begins to start getting more and more alert. And you may have experienced this in different ways. For myself, in, in the earlier years of my practice, I would notice that I wouldn't really get alert till maybe two in the afternoon. You know, I'd be sitting and walking, and then finally by two, it's like my mind would wake up. But over the weeks, you know, and months of practice, I noticed, oh, it started getting alert at 12, and then at 10, and then at 8. You know, and like more and more energy was available in the system. Or you might experience that You need less sleep. And pay attention to that. Because we're so much creatures of habit. And you may think, oh, I need a certain amount of sleep every night. If you're feeling wakeful, if you're feeling energized, if you wake up earlier, get up. Because actually the need for sleep for many people decreases and often decreases significantly. There's also a more profound meaning and really a deeper danger to sloth and torpor than simply the periodic times of sleepiness or drowsiness. This mind state has deeper significance. And that is the pattern, the deep pattern we often have of withdrawing from difficulties. That's the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. In the face of difficulty, we withdraw, we retreat. It's the habit, and often a deeply conditioned habit, of not arousing the energy, not arousing the effort to meet the challenges and difficulties that come.
Now, sometimes we withdraw from the challenges in our daily lives. You know, we feel overcome. For some people, we can meet the challenges of daily life okay, but then when we're faced with inner difficulties, this pattern kicks in and we feel that we're withdrawing or retreating from them. We're not arousing the energy to meet the inner difficulties. One of the reasons that on this level, sloth and torpor is so seductive is because just as doubt comes masquerading as wisdom, sloth and torpor can come masquerading as compassion. We might feel tired, we might feel bored, we might feel restless, we might feel some pain in the body, and this very kindly sounding voice arises in the mind. Let me take care of myself. Let me be good to myself. I think I'll go take a nap. or some variation. Now, there are, of course, times when we do need rest, you know, and so as to pay attention to that, but very often we don't. It's just this withdrawal from difficulty. We don't like to face it. We don't like to engage with it. We don't like to be with it. And so this faux compassion kicks in which is really just a manifestation of sloth and torpor. One situation early on in my practice really brought this to the fore, and it was such a useful lesson for me. It was back, this was like in 1970 years ago, uh, when I first started practicing with Goenka, one of the great Vipassana teachers, uh, in India, and his schedule. In his schedule, we would wake up at four, and then have a two-hour sit before breakfast. I was very motivated to get up because I wanted to be early to the meditation hall to get a place against the wall. <laughs> so I got up okay. That wasn't the problem. <laughs> So I'd rush into the hall and get my place against the wall, start this long two-hour sitting, and after, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, uh, lean against the wall. A couple of minutes after that, I'd be asleep. Bell rang. Oh, that was nice, nice sitting. (laughs) Went quickly. So this was happening day after day after day, and then the voice of, I think it was a combination of doubt and sloth and torpor, sounding like wisdom and compassion. I just started saying, this is stupid. You know, why don't I just sleep longer, get up, I'll be rested, I'll be wakeful. To just come in here day after day and fall asleep is really pointless. But fortunately, I think it was mostly peer pressure. I didn't give in to the voice. And I just kept coming and doing it. And then one day, and this is what was amazing, one day I sat down and I was wide awake. I didn't fall asleep at all. Getting to that point meant just staying with it, going through that difficulty, not retreating, not pulling back. Let me just keep doing it. Because even when we think nothing is happening, if the effort is there, if we keep on practicing in that way, it is happening. Just may not be visible to us at any particular time. When we're simply lost in sloth and torpor, you know, this retreating mode of mind, there's not much joy or pleasure in our lives. And there's not much delight in our practice because we're always holding ourselves back.
So what to do? As with the others, as with doubt, as with restlessness, as soon as you become aware of whatever form it's taking, you know, of sleepiness, of dullness, of drowsiness, of retreating, as soon as you become aware, make a note of it, recognize it. Sleepy, dull, withdrawing, sloth, whatever word you use. And then you could take it a step further and investigate a bit. It's as if you ask yourself the question, what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness? You know, so you arouse the mindfulness instead of just sinking into it, to actually turn the attention back to it. Well, what is the experience I'm calling sleepiness? What does it feel like in the body? What are the sensations in the body? And get very specific. What is the quality of the mind? You know, is it heavy? Is it dull? And the very investigation of it often brings about more alertness. We can work with sloth and torpor by arousing more energy. You know, do some fast walking. Sometimes, and this is quite counterintuitive, sometimes very slow walking can arouse energy. The first year with Saida Upandita, when he was here in 84, we were doing this long three-month retreat with him, just sleeping four hours, so there's a lot of sloth and torpor that was arising. And many of us were walking in the dining room, and one time I found myself walking next to Sharon, who was, in that retreat, the queen of slow walking. I mean, she was just creeping along. <laughs> so I was walking in you know, the next aisle there, and I was feeling very sleepy, and I had tried walking quickly, and wasn't helping. So then I glanced over at Sharon, and... I don't know what kicked in, and maybe it was some competitive <laughs> yogidom. But I thought, I'm going to see if I can walk slower than her. <laughs> in fact, I took it to an extreme and I said, let me see how slowly I can walk and still be moving. You know, so I just brought it back right down to the extreme. That's minuscule, microscopic movement. It was amazing. Within two steps, I was wide awake. Because the level of interest that was required and the level of attentiveness to move that slowly created all this energy. And it was very unexpected. So it's just worth playing. You know, you're tired, walk faster, walk slower, see what works. You know, some of the familiar remedies of opening the eyes or standing up, moderation in food, especially in the evening. Now that really depresses the energy. Now what I'm about to suggest again is perhaps for more experienced yogis, because there's a slight danger to it. One time when Deepama was here, you know, our, our teacher from India, uh, who's very inspiring, and so she, one retreat we were doing with her, she said to me, Joseph, I want you to just sleep three hours a night. Don't lie down during the day. But if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. Okay, so that was kind of the instruction. Three hours of sleep a night, I, there was a fair amount of drowsiness and sleepiness. But I didn't lie down. She said, well, if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. So I was just sitting there, drowsy, sleepy, and because I felt like I had permission, what happened was that my mind stopped fighting it. And that was a very interesting state. Instead of trying to claw myself out of it, 
it's almost like I relaxed into it. And what's interesting about sleepiness, sleepiness happens when there's an imbalance. You could say that there's too much concentration and not enough energy. In the sense, when you're about to fall asleep, the mind is not restless, the mind is not agitated. It's relaxing, relaxing. It has its own kind of calm and concentration. Because I wasn't fighting with it. I had Deepamath's permission. So I was going in and I was kind of settling in. And what happened was, it's as if I found the thread of calm and concentration that was right there mixed in with the sleepiness. And because I wasn't fighting it, you know, sometimes I would I would kind of nod off, but often I would just relax into it, find that concentration and calm, and come out and be totally alert. So there are many ways to play, and it's all a question of taking interest. You know, not just wallowing in it. In Pali, the Pali language, the word for energy or effort is virya. And virya, usually translated as energy or effort, also has another meaning. Sometimes it's translated as courage. And I like that translation of it. Because in English, you know, the word courage really comes from the French or Latin cour or heart. And I feel like courage is that quality of strength of heart. And so another way of understanding effort is not a striving, but rather having the courage, having the strength of heart to be present with difficulties not retreating from them. And this is precisely the attitude we need in working with sloth and torpor. Okay, the fourth of the hindrances is doubt, there's restlessness and agitation and worry, there's sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is aversion. Now we experience this in many different ways. Anger, hatred, annoyance, fear, irritation, judging mind, ill will. All of these mind states, and many more, there's there's a long list of aversive mind states, They are all conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. Something unpleasant arises in our mind, in our body, in our experience in the world. Our conditioned reaction to unpleasant experience is we don't like it. And that not liking takes all of these forms. And it's easy to see this in relationship to physical pain. Now you're sitting, and then there's a strong pain that starts to come in your knee, in your back. How many of you initially, even more than initially, pain comes, oh good, let me see this. It's probably not the first reaction. You know, our conditioned reaction is, I don't want this. We contract. You know, we tense in the face of it. We have impatience with it or frustration. We don't want the pain to be there. So it's very clear. I mean, we can, we can observe this reaction very often in this very simple situation. Notice what the mind does when pain arises. Aversion also comes when we think about painful or unpleasant past situations. You know, we think of someone or some event from the past and we get angry just thinking about it. But in that moment, what's really happening? 
we're getting angry at a thought. The person is not there. The situation is not happening. We're having a thought about it and then getting angry. I don't remember whether I mentioned to you before or not, but one of Munindra's favorite lines, which really stayed with me, uh, when he said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. You know, To really understand that is very freeing. But more surprising and more ridiculous than getting angry at a thought about past situations, which might actually have happened, we can have thoughts or imagination of things that haven't yet happened. We create scenarios in our minds of things that might happen and then get angry. I've had this happen many times. You know, where, you know, I'm... I'm anticipating some future difficult situation you know, that, I, that I think will be difficult or anticipate that it will and build up a whole scenario in my mind and get annoyed or impatient or fearful, some form of aversion around it. I think it's helpful to remember Mark Twain's great line when he said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. Because we imagine things. We can get impatient or frustrated or angry with unpleasant situations on retreat. There's a well-known phenomenon. It's kind of the equivalent to, or, or even a kind of yogi mind. We call it the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, there's somebody here who bugs you. You know, you don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they dress, you don't like the way they take their food, and you may have never said a single word to them. You know, it's just building up a whole story in the mind and then getting annoyed whenever you see them. Or what can happen when we're faced with our own internal difficulties, you know, we're feeling grumpy or disgruntled or whatever, and then we simply project, you know, our own grumpiness onto other people. Anger can arise, aversion can arise, when we personalize impersonal situations. A perfect perfect place to watch this happen is at airports. You know, because either watch it in ourselves or in other people, you know, you get to an airport, get there two hours early, three hours early, get up to the desk, flight canceled. To watch the various reactions that, again, are arising within oneself or with others, you know, and all the annoyance and all the irritation that can come as if it was canceled just to bother us. You know, it has nothing to do with us. It's a totally impersonal situation, but it doesn't stop us from having that kind of reaction. So how to work with all these forms of aversion that arise, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, whether it's irritation, annoyance, grumpiness, whatever. Again, as with all the others, the key is to recognize it quickly. Keep an eye out. If, if aversion is your favorite hindrance, keep an eye out for it so you see when it arises. And the trick is not judging the aversion and not judging oneself for it arising. It's just to see it. It's just to be mindful of it. Now, depending on our own particular conditioning, there are different approaches we can take to working with anger or aversion or ill will. 
If we are the self-judging type, we can emphasize an approach that is taught a lot by Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the great Vietnamese meditation master and poet and writer and peace activist. Because he teaches a very <coughs> tender and compassionate way of being with anger. Just read a few lines of what he said. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So when we're the self-judging type, we want to balance that when aversion arises, when ill will arises. It's like holding it tenderly, holding it with compassion, holding ourselves with compassion, and letting the mindfulness come from that. If, on the other hand, we're not the self judging type, but rather the self-indulgent type, you know, where our mind tends to indulge things, then there's another mode. We could call it the Sayada Upandita mode, (laughs) the warrior mode. And some of the language that he uses, very unlike Thich Nhat Hanh, pulverize it, crush it, (laughs) destroy the defilements, take your sort of wisdom and cut its head off. Sometimes that can be helpful. You know, if, as I say, we are in the habit of just wallowing in it and indulging, and we've seen it a million times, a phrase that I've used in my own practice, being of this nature... Sometimes I've seen patterns, you know, over and over again, and I'll just say to myself in a slightly softer tone than Sayadaw suggested, you know, enough already. I don't need to do this. No. You know, and it's, it's just taking that sort of wisdom and saying, no, we don't need to go here. That can be very helpful as well. There's a third alternative and maybe it's the one in between which is perhaps the most useful of all, and that is to really look into it with insight, look into it with wisdom. There's a very nice story uh, about Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, forest master. Um, You know, and he was on retreat um, one time out in the forest uh, near where his monastery was. So he was out retreating the forest and the villagers you know, down in the village were having some kind of festivity and there was a lot of music and a lot of loudspeakers and so there was a lot of noise coming up. And as he said, he was just getting more and more annoyed at the villagers, you know, Don't they know that I'm up here meditating and I spend all this time serving them and just going on and on in that kind of irritated vein? But then he kind of looked at it more carefully and I'm reading from an account of what happened. So he said, well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then this insight arose. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It is me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. 
So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. Aha. (laughs) It's helpful to see, you know, really what is our anger? What is our ill will about in relationship to experience? Are we going out to bother the experience? It is just what it is. Can we open? Can we see it? When we're angry or annoyed, it's very seductive, you know, and we often justify it to ourselves. You know, because of certain circumstances, we feel, I should feel this way, I should be angry. Well, that's like holding on to a hot burning coal. Well, I should be holding on to this. Who's burning? Who's suffering? We're the ones who are suffering. Now, we can't usually control these feelings. So it's not a question of controlling them or somehow trying to figure out how they, how they don't arise. And sometimes these feelings, even the feelings of ill will or anger, sometimes they contain important messages for us. You know, sometimes there's real information conveyed. The key, the way of practice, though, is to be mindful of these feelings of aversion when they arise so we don't get lost in them, we're not wallowing in them, we're not drowning in them, we're not venting them. We really use it as a basis for insight and understanding. Well, the fifth hindrance is desire. But I think... We'll wait on that. And maybe there'll be a whole talk on desire uh, next week. With all of these, with all of these hindrances, a central understanding and a liberating one is to realize that they are not intrinsic to the mind itself. They are visitors. They come when the conditions are present, the conditions change, these hindrances disappear. They're coming as temporary visitors. The problem is that they've come as visitors for so long and so often we think that they live here. We think that, yeah, this is who I am. And so in our meditation practice, It's to take the interest to arouse the mindfulness in order to see them for what they are, to see their impermanent, selfless nature. When we're not mindful, these hindrances obscure the natural wisdom of mind. And when we are mindful, these very hindrances become a vital aspect of our awakening. I'd just like to close with some lines from the writer Marcel Proust. He said, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And really that's what we're doing here. We're practicing having new eyes on all of these very familiar aspects of our experience. Let's sit for a few minutes.
May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.